This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Hello, I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Joel, I want to talk about coaxial connectors because we all know that there are many of them out there. Not all necessarily that hams use day in and day out, but there's certainly a collection that your average ham is is likely to run into. And for example, the so-called, and I put quotes around this, UHF connector, right? That's absolutely right. Most amateur gear operating through HF into Six and two meters are connected to their antenna systems via UHF series coaxial connectors. And the UHF series includes the popular PL259 plugs and SO239 sockets. I don't know why they don't both have the same numbers, but they don't. No, I always wondered about that. (laughs) Somebody in. I thought you were going to tell me why, but. Well, because somebody in the military didn't notice that they were having two different lists and they. (laughs) That one came next. And there are other variations, of course. Uh, Those refer to the standard types, but there are many other variations of both plugs and sockets that you'll run into. And these are mainly popular because they've become a a de facto standard in spite of their deficiencies, of which there are a number we'll talk about. But it's important to understand where they came from. You're talking about the PL259 as far as its deficiencies. and Well, the whole UHF series. Oh, okay. As a class, have some negative um, negatives associated with them, as as most of us do. (laughs) (laughs) But it helps to understand where they came from. In the days before coaxial cable. I have equipment that uh, has antenna terminals with fan stock clips. Remember them? Oh, yeah. And some, and many with screw terminals and so forth. Mm-hmm. And those were used to connect wires or wire transmission lines to radios, typically before World War II. At that time, the ultra highs in terms of frequency refer, referred to frequencies above 30 megahertz. Yes. So if we were to rename them now, the uh, what we called the ultra highs then would be called the very highs. Now, the VHF range, 30 to 300 megahertz. And we would probably call the connectors VHF connectors, not UHF connectors. Well, they were. it was UHF to the people at the time. Exactly right. Ultra high, but yes. And they, they kept the name because that was their name. And yeah. <laughs> they still called that. So they're not really appropriate very much for UHF use, although sometimes you'll see them used on 70 centimeter equipment. I have, yeah. yeah. Uh, and one of the major limitations is that they are not a constant impedance connector. That is to say, the ideal connector looks like it isn't there to electrically to something. So if you had a coaxial cable with a 50-ohm characteristic impedance, what you'd really want to have is a 50-ohm connector that, that continues that characteristic impedance. And that's easy enough to do with having the right uh, size center conductor and, and shield and um, space in between. But they didn't. They either didn't know or didn't care at that point or it didn't matter much. And in fact, it doesn't matter if the frequency is low enough in the HF or into the low VHF range. You do get a mismatch, but it it changes very quickly back to the other impedance and the transformation of anything through that short length is very small. But if you get up into a high enough frequency, the transformation can cause the standing wave ratio of the transmission line extending below that point to be higher and cause a significant loss or, or have uh, cause problems for, for constant impedance equipment that's designed to work into a 50-ohm load. Kind of like a big speed bump in a parking lot. Very much so. Usually what that means in a practical sense is 
for a non-critical application on two meters, UHF connectors are usually okay. Although if you're into moon bouncing for every last decibel, you probably don't want to put up with UHF connectors. And certainly at uh, 70 centimeters, they're not ideal because they're getting to be long enough to be a significant fraction of a wavelength. So the impedance transformation uh, becomes more significant. And that results in, in problems. The extent of the problem depends on how fussy you are. If you're working a 70 centimeter mobile station, 440 megahertz um, dual bander kind of thing in your car and have a 10 foot length of coaxial cable to some kind of mag mount antenna on your fender, you won't notice the additional loss probably and the equipment will be happy working into the whatever impedance it has. But again, with uh, if you're investing in a serious antenna system for long range propagation, you don't want to waste power unnecessarily and the easy way to avoid that is by changing connector type. So what do you use? Can I guess? <laughs> Well, there are a number of choices. Go ahead. What's your guess? My guess is an N connector. Am I right? That would be my first choice. Yes, the N connector is very good. Now, it's important to note that um, there are a couple of other problems with UHF that we should UHF connectors we should mention. One of them is, unlike the N connector, the UHF relies on the back shell to make the connection to the shield, which means if it loosens up, as it will always do in the trunk of your car, in my experience, yes, you end up with a poor connection in an intermittent situation as you bounce along the road. Always tighten the UHF connector back shells with a pair of gas pliers and just a little bit of a twist. You don't want to uh, deform them, but just enough to make them really snug, and they'll tend to stay together. Another problem with UHF connectors is that they're not waterproof. So if they're outside, you need to waterproof them to keep water out of them because not only does the water get into the connector, which can be a problem, but it also can penetrate into the coax, and that can degrade the coax very quickly compared to not having water. It sure can. In fact, you know, yesterday when I was taking my cables down, as I was explaining to you, because my big spruce tree had to come down, there was a length of LMR 400 coax. And do you know that water had gotten into that? And there was actually a drip of water when I unhooked the connector and a gray sort of uh, corrosion. That's uh, that's amazing. And um, it probably did not improve its uh, loss characteristics. No, I'm sure. Yeah. So it's, it's good to keep water out of coax. Oh, yes. <laughs> and we could, that's sort of another topic, but we could... Uh, we should talk about that sometime, yeah. keeping water out of coax. Yeah. Yep. And it comes up a lot. I get a lot of questions. There are a lot of questions that cause me to answer about water and coax, <laughs> even though that might not have been the thrust of the question. So a type N connector solves all those problems. It's a constant impedance connector, and they're available in both 50 and 75 ohm impedances, which is a little bit of a concern because they're not compatible. If you plug a 50, the the 50 ohm has a larger center conductor and a larger center conductor pin than the 75 ohm. If you plug a 50 ohm plug into a 75 ohm uh, socket, you will spread the pins and uh, once in my life, I've encountered a situation in which a nicely snugged up type N plug in a type N socket was not making contact, and it turned out to be a non-appropriate impedance interconnection. So uh, that, that doesn't usually happen. Usually there's enough tolerance variation and, and shift of things that it makes contact. But it can happen, not just theoretically, I've, I've seen it happen, that <laughs> I, the two will not make contact. And, and you've damaged the uh, connector also, so you have to be careful about that. Now, fortunately, in the radio business, you almost always just see 50-ohm connectors. The 75-ohm connectors are typically used in video applications and cable TV applications and distribution. Kind of. but, but the type N connector is constant impedance, and the way the connection is made the, uh, while the back shell holds the whole thing together, the connection actually happens inside that through a d- different structure that 
can move a little bit without it causing to intermittent. And the uh, the usual type N, I say that because there are some that are made like UHF connectors, uh, but the usual type N that's made with a gasket in it is actually waterproof. So that's those are all benefits that uh, solve problems with UHF connector. And the type N connector is about the same size as a UHF connector. They're assembled somewhat differently. And arguably, once you've done it a few times, the N is actually easier to do. You don't have the problem of, of, uh, of sweating the shield to the back shell of the outer side of the plug, for example. Now, of course, crimping avoids that with either type. Now, in terms of frequency response, unlike the um, UHF connector, which Amphenol specifies as being up good up to 300 megahertz, um, they specify the type N as being good up to 11 gigahertz and oh. under some conditions up to 18, huh. which is a whole different uh, realm. Now, the disadvantage of the type N is that they can't handle quite the same amount of power. Typically, if you think of the you have the Type N as, as being capable of handling 600 watts, that's a good power level up through the VHF and UHF range. Now, in addition to the Type N, there are a bunch of connector types that use the same exact connecting arrangement as the Type N, even though they look differently and they're not compatible with each other. The BNC is probably the most uh, commonly encountered uh, of this sort. It's a bayonet connector that's smaller, and it's a very handy size for RG58, RG8X, and so forth, and they're available for those types of cables. And it has that neat locking function. Yeah, it's a, it's a very easy to – it's wonderful for patch cables because they're so oh, yeah. easy to disconnect. But tell me, what does it mean, BNC? You One can, guy told me British Naval Connector. I'm no, not sure I'm buying that. I believe the real answer is uh, people's names, and I can't think of that. Ah. But B may stand for bayonet. Okay. <laughs> bayonet, somebody, somebody. Somebody will write in and tell oh, us. Oh, no doubt. I got a bunch of mail about that. And I, I looked that up one time. I actually found it. This, it is possible. But that's not the only one. There's also a TNC, which looks just like a BNC and is the same size, but has a threaded that's right. outer back shell. So that's, again, handy for the smaller cable size. Now, you can get the connectors going either way. You can get ends for small cable and you can get BNC for large cable, but somehow BNC and a large cable never look quite right to me. No. There's also one you almost never see in amateur circles, and I don't understand why, and that's the Type C connector. I never see that. Which is like a Type N, except it's a bayonet. So it's a larger size bayonet connector. Huh. Now, again, all these have the same electrical arrangement, size and size. They all have the same power rating and so forth. And they're all waterproof and they're all constant impedance. One thing about the Type N, because they're fairly popular with amateurs, some manufacturers, Amphenol in particular, have a series at lower prices than their usual commercial ones. That I haven't seen anything about them that makes them look less expensive or work less well than the more expensive ones, but they do have uh, lower price and plugs and sockets intended for amateur use. There was one I wanted to ask you about because it's popping up, at least uh, when it comes to handheld transceivers. Oh, the, yeah, SMA. the SMA. Yes, yeah. I was going to mention that. Now, that was intended for semi-rigid microwave cables, <laughs> mainly oh. in equipment. I've seen that over the years in radars and so forth. They're designed to be infrequently disconnected. Infrequently? Yeah. Okay. And they should be wrench-tightened to be secured properly. Does that apply to your rubber duck antenna then on well, your handheld? Or? I'm, I'm talking about what the connector is designed for. Oh, okay. Now, you put it on okay. a, on a um, handheld radio antenna, and you probably won't tighten it with a wrench. No. And probably, because it's a handheld antenna, it doesn't work all that well anyway, uh, it works well enough for what it's supposed to do, it won't matter if it's not perfectly connected. But personally, I prefer the uh, BNC connectors, mainly because not only are they easier to, to connect and disconnect, but they're easier to connect other things too. 
Now, I've got adapters from SMA to BNC. And I've got a coffee cans of adapters that <laughs> I gave me once, which are very handy. Mine are in a big baggie. But they're not cheap. And um, no. you know, the fewer kind of connectors you have to deal with, the better. But the other connector that's probably next most popular compared to the UHF is actually the lowly RCA connector. Oh, yes. Which is really, originally was designed as an audio connector. And only because Collins Radio decided to put it for the 100-watt KWM series of transceivers, gave it some credibility as an RF connector. And other people, uh, Drake, for example, uses it for, they don't use it for their 100-watt. They have a UHF no. for the 100-watt. But all their other interconnections between the R4 and the T4 series of radios use RCA connectors. So you'll find them for many applications at RF. And I've never seen them for more than about 100 watts. Of course, they have the disadvantage that any kind of a pulling motion will disconnect them. There's nothing that holds them together other than friction, unlike the uh, other connectors we've been talking about. So, But they, they seem to work, and they're a handy size, and they're very inexpensive. And in a pinch, you can use an audio cable that you buy at your local electronics dealer like we used to have around the corner. <laughs> Back in the day, yeah. Um, but they do work. I guess there's nothing wrong with them. Uh, some of them are made with a sort of like RF connectors in the sense that they have a back shell kind of arrangement around the shield. I'm not sure that their shield has as much integrity as a um, real coax connector, but at HF, they seem to work fine. Yeah, definitely. So, and there are other ca connectors, too, that you occasionally see and people ask me about. One of them that I've never used but seems sensible is a mini UHF. I don't think I've ever seen that. It looks just like a UHF, but it's about the size of a BNC. Okay. So it's a nice fit for you know, RG8X or RG58 kind of cable. They may not be as popular in this country as in some other countries, but they seems like a sensible kind of thing. I've never seen any equipment provided with them, but there may be some out there. Hmm. And I'm sure there are many others that you'll run into. But, but those are the main ones that you see. Again, the UHF, uh, as long as you keep it snug and keep it waterproof, works fine at HF and will handle the legal limit. Oh, I should mention that uh, in addition to the Type N, which we said it you know tops out at about 600 watts in the higher frequency range, there's a Type HN, which is a larger version of the N. And that will handle the legal limit and will handle larger size coaxial cables more readily, like... RG17 or, or uh, some of the bigger high-power cables. So if you're into the high-power mode, you may want to look into HN as a connector option. Yeah, that Again, makes sense. They're not cheap, but uh, nothing about high-power is cheap usually. Not at all. Let's take our break, and we shall return. Ever talk to a salesperson who didn't know the difference between a rotator and a rotary phone? Or a Yagi and a yo-yo? Or a ballon and a ballerina? You'll never have that problem with DX Engineering. When you call us, you'll talk directly with knowledgeable amateur radio experts, people who speak your language. When you contact DX Engineering, you're dealing with operators who are as passionate about the hobby as you are. This means better service, expert technical advice, and a commitment to your complete satisfaction, even long after your purchase has been made. Whether you're newly licensed or a long-time operator, you'll always find a friendly ham who understands exactly what you need on the other end of the line. Plus, you'll find a huge selection of amateur radio equipment, get the fastest shipping in the ham universe, and shipping is free on most orders over $99. Let's talk about your station. Visit us at dxengineering.com. That's dxengineering.com. And we are back, Joel, and we have a question from Sandy, WB4EVH. And Sandy's asking, I recently saw a local CBer assembling a circularly polarized antenna. At HF, would there be any advantage to circular polarization? Yeah, it's an interesting question. It doesn't come up very often, but we think of circular polarization often as, as um, associated with satellite communications on VHF and UHF because the satellites tend to tumble and rotate 
with a subsequent change in polarization and having circular polarization avoids the fades that uh, result from that. But it actually came up long before satellites. Right after World War II, there was a problem with ground-to-air VHF communication because aircraft changed orientation during maneuvers resulting in deep fades for the same reason. If you imagine uh, a fighter pilot doing uh, barrel rolls past the tower as he's (laughs) checking in, (laughs) his polarization will shift from vertical to horizontal as he rolls over. You mentioned that in a relatively recent podcast. Oh, okay. Well, it's still probably true. (laughs) Oh, I imagine. Sure. They probably don't let them do it anymore. But (laughs) most Tower communication shifted to circular polarized antennas for VHF, which is uh, in that 120 megahertz range, similar to our two-meter size antennas. The problem went away. Now, the downside is that there's a 3 dB loss compared to being on the same polarization, horizontal to horizontal or vertical to vertical. But the um, out-of-polarization, you know, uh, vertical to horizontal can be 20 or 30 dB, which is hard to copy. You know, that 3 dB loss is not a significant issue if you're talking about ground-to-air in the vicinity of the airport, so it doesn't really matter, but uh, it can matter for other applications. Now, with HF ionospheric communication, the polarization does shift with time. That's why people don't really worry about it. So you have HF um, horizontal and vertical antennas on different sides of an ocean talking to each other, and there's enough uh, energy in each polarization that the signal usually gets through without too much trouble. But there are fades, and one cause for fades is is the polarization ending up being cross-polarized from what you're expecting. So having circularly polarized antennas will reduce or eliminate fades due to that polarization shift. Now, unfortunately, that's not the only cause of HF fade. So going to circular polarization won't eliminate fading, but it'll eliminate fading due to that cause. You also have fading that results from uh, angle of arrival shift and uh, other things that that happen. Uh, And at a serious government receiving site back in the days of radio teletype, I don't know if they still use that, but they have diversity reception for both uh, polarization and uh, angle of arrival using um, up to four receivers in that case and possibly another four for different frequencies. They have things going on. You shift between them to eliminate fades and get good reception. But most hams don't do that. But having a circularly polarized HF antenna does eliminate fades due to uh, polarization shift. And I've only known one ham. There are probably many others who have uh, actually done this seriously. And that was a mentor of mine back when I was uh, 12 or 13 years old, Bill Ellsworth, W1ZF who was a um, broadcast engineer, I think, for the Westinghouse Network's AM system. And he had an 80-meter vertical and an 80-meter dipole, horizontal dipole, that he fed 90 degrees out of phase to get circular polarization. Ah. Actually operated from his station using... Now, I couldn't tell the difference, but uh, I was 13. I was going to ask you, did it work? It worked. Now, how would it work with one the other? I really need to do some switching pretty quickly to tell. But it did work. You know, there's very little to say that you shouldn't do that, other than if the polarization is coming in in one particular polarization, then circular polarization will be down somewhat from horizontal or vertical that matches what's coming in. But since it's shifting all the time and there's a combination of both, chances are that circular polarization on HF uh, reception will work just fine. And similarly, by transmitting it, you sort of avoid having it null out uh, at the other end as well. So, you know, I think it's it's not a bad idea. It might just be a lot of trouble. To well, I was just going to think, you know, right? how many... 80 meter antennas do you have room for in your yard? <laughs> you know, one is <laughs> much less cross polarizing. Yes, them exactly. Than, yes. Well, that was informative, Joel. Thank you. My pleasure. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is in podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple planet.com. 
This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved. Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.